Welcome to the Table Dallas podcast. At the Table Dallas, we create a sacred space to worship, connecting our stories with the story of God as revealed in scriptures. We invite you now to listen to this week's discussion. Start the recording. All right. Well, welcome everyone to our Sunday Zoom table gathering. We're glad that you're with us in the fourth week of our Easter series called The New You, and we're in 1 Peter chapter 3. And we're going to begin looking at uh, verse 8 and 9. So 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 and 9 is where we'll be focusing our attention on as we begin this morning. And let me go ahead and read it. And um, I'm going to do something new. All right, somebody's really wild and loud there. Um, I'm going to go ahead and uh, I'm going to go ahead and put the text in the... Uh, chat box. So if you would like to be able to follow along just by opening up your chat box, you'll be able to do that. You'll be able to see it over on the right-hand side of your screen. And that maybe you'll keep your attention more toward the screen so you don't have to worry about going up and down. So if you open up your, your chat box, you should see that um, for you there. So we read, Peter writes, finally, all of you be of one mind, sympathetic, lovers of your fellow believers, compassionate and modest in your opinion of yourselves. Verse nine, don't pay back evil for evil or insult for insult. Instead, give blessing in return. You were called to do this so that you might inherit a blessing. So Peter begins with what I would call a five-fold description of what their attitude ought to be after they've listened to and, and considered all that he shared with them in the first two chapters. And we've looked at a number of those things. And he says here that they are to be of one mind, sympathetic, lovers of each other, compassionate and modest in their opinion of themselves. So let me ask as we begin, the one that stands out to me of all of those first five is literally the first one when he says that we're to be of one mind. Here's my question. Is Peter suggesting that there has to be uniformity of thinking? If so, why? If not, why not? Does there need to be uniformity of thinking? Is that what he is suggesting here? Anyone? Mm. What do we think? Is he expecting uniformity? Do we know what that word means? Everyone thinking and feeling the same way, right? I don't think that he's saying uniformity and that we are all thinking and feeling the same way. I think he means unity and that we all have a common goal. Okay, good. Any other thoughts, ideas on uniformity? Is that what he's expecting? Finally, after you've heard all these things, you should all feel and think exactly the same way. I think it's more like we should all, we should all kind of respond similarly, but it doesn't mean having exactly the same ideas about everything. Okay. Just the, you know, translational difference. I don't like the translation you got says of one mind, which seems very narrow. Narrow. Versus Understood. Yeah. Yeah. My grandpa used to say, if two people agree on everything, one of them isn't thinking. 
What do you think of that? Is that true? Not necessarily, but it could be. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and you know, think about, in this case, think about something like Paul and Barnabas and their disagreement over John Mark, his usefulness. You know, so if he doesn't mean conformity or uniformity, um, what does he mean? Well, I think you've hit on it. A number of you have hit on this idea. It's cooperation in the midst of diversity. In other words, he's saying the same thing that Jesus prayed over his disciples in John 17. And I find it very curious that, that Peter, who was one of the disciples who went with Jesus into that garden, who's somewhere away from Jesus and eventually falls asleep, as all three of them do, must have heard some of what Jesus was praying because he uses that same language, that they may be all of one mind, that they may be cooperative in the midst of their diversity. And so we're to have that kind of cooperation in the midst of our diversity. We're to have sympathy, which is to feel an emotion or hurt together. We're to love, to have compassion, Compassion is that great word in Greek, splankna, that idea of you feel it in your gut. And a modest opinion of ourselves. That's another way of paraphrasing the word, the Greek word that we can also translate as humility. Humility. And I think that last one, that last word, we translating, our translation says a modest opinion of yourself, that humility that one might have perked their ears just a bit. Because remember, in the Greco-Roman culture, humility was considered a weakness. So my question is, why are these five characteristics that Peter gave, why are these imperative for healthy relationships? and maybe what happens to relationships if they're absent. So why are these things imperative for healthy relationships and what happens when they're absent? All of these things aid in disagreements and communication. So people being able to have more productive interactions with each other. All right, excellent, good. Other ideas? It's all others focused. I like that. Yeah, when you have that, it's others focused. Good. What else? What happens when we don't, when they're not present to relationships? It's all about me. Yeah, certainly it becomes all about me. Good. What else? Yeah, separation. Yeah, you, there's a separation, right? So it, it breaks the unity the, the, of one mind, that idea of cooperation in the midst of diversity. Any other ideas? It would be really difficult to um, spread the message if you're going about it sort of more heavy-handed, saying to, you know, you know, preaching the gospel to other people, saying, I'm right, you're wrong, and I don't care what you think or how you feel. That's right. Yeah, good. What else? The importance well, of relationship I'm, and what happens when it's not there. When I'm thinking of the, the body of Christ and then like the human body, 
Like if I'm trying to go jogging and my knee starts hurting me and my, uh, my eye or my hand is sitting there, you know, you stupid knee, you're, you know, you're no good and all that kind of stuff. That, that's not helping my knee any, that's not helping even heal it or anything. And if we do that to each other in the body of Christ, you know, uh, if somebody is feeling down and, and instead of, you know, well, you shouldn't feel that way and, and we're kicking them when they're down and everything, we're, we're not uplifting the body of Christ. We're, we're not keeping ourselves healthy as the body of Christ. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Well, zoom over now. If you want to look in your chat or back down in your text, look at verse nine. So after he gives this, you know, obviously the finally piece is connecting us back again, and Peter loves to do that. Um, in a lot of ways, I think this finally is, um, uh, how do I want to call it, preacher speak, you know, and finally, just one more point, and then it goes on, and finally, don't laugh, David, I see you smiling there in front of me, that certain preachers, I don't know, um, might say, yes, and one more thing, and one more thing, it's, it's almost like that, it's like Peter is it's like a stream of consciousness, right? He's thinking and this guy, you know, his scribe is writing these ideas down. Um, and after he gives them those descriptors, then he gives um, an ex exhortation. He says, don't pay back evil for evil or insult for insult. Instead, give blessing in return. I suggest that we might miss out on just how startling the first part of verse nine must have been to the original audience. I know it's a hard question, especially fairly early in the morning and maybe you've only had one cup of coffee, but try to think back for a minute about the culture in which they're living, the Greco-Roman culture and what's happening in the world around them. Why might that be a startling exhortation or expectation of them as followers of Jesus. Anyone want to take a, a stab? And there's no wrong answer. I'm not going to, you know, chide you if you're in the wrong direction here, but just some thoughts. Anybody want to take a stab at that? An equivalent consequence for the action, like you steal something and you get your hand chopped off. All right, start from the beginning. I'm sorry. I talked over you. Oh, um, is it is it because there was always some kind of a consequence of equal magnitude for an action, like getting your hand cut off if you steal something? Uh, certainly, and you've kind of hit on it right off the bat because you're exactly right. In two of the three monotheistic religions in the world, the major monotheistic religions, which are, what are the three monotheistic, major monotheistic religions in the world? Judaism, Christianity, Judaism. Christianity and Islam. Yeah, Christianity and Islam, of those three, only Christianity has this action, this idea of loving and blessing our enemies. That is unique to Christianity, because if you know, both Judaism, and maybe some of you didn't know, also Islam, closely related, right, have laws to exact and yet limit vengeance. That's the, the, the Latin lex talionis, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And so Exodus 21 in the First Testament for Judaism sets the boundaries for if this is what somebody does to you, this is what you get to do in return. And similarly in the Quran in Surah 5, 
they have that same kind of layout of this is what you can expect, right? This for that. And yet in the midst of that, the culture that many of them would have experienced, here comes Peter saying that Christians are to act in exactly the opposite way. We're to bless and love in response to evil. So here's my question. What makes this exhortation so difficult? In other words, why is it so tempting to get even with someone who wrongs you? We feel like they deserve it. We feel like they deserve it, Dan? It's, in, it's instinctual. What do you mean? Oh, if I've been hurt, I immediately, there's no thought about it. I immediately want to pay him back. I think it's a, a built-in instinct we have. Do you just want to pay him back, Dan? Really? <laughs> I can neither confirm nor deny that. We don't even necessarily just want to get even, do we? Well, we want to get the upper hand. Yeah. So when someone, yeah, I think you're hitting on something. When someone uh, does something to us, we want to return that, but we also want to maybe add 10 or 15 or 20 or more percentage on top of it, right? Hex, hence the whole Exodus 19, Lex Talionis piece, right? Where... Here's the limits of what's supposed to happen. Any other ideas? What makes it so difficult or tempting to get even? Well, I, I feel like if we don't return the insult, we will probably appear weak in the eyes of our adversaries, and they'll be emboldened to further take advantage of us. Yeah, certainly in the Greco-Roman world, that was the understanding, right? If you don't respond, you're weak. Good. Any other ideas? You're gonna do it again. Yeah, they're just gonna keep. They're just gonna keep steamrolling you, right? Good. I think it's so much against the, what was normal and acceptable, and uh, what going off what Dan was saying, how it's so innate for us to to want to get even. So it's not only normal in society, but it's part of our, our sinful self. Yeah, you got the double whammy. It's both personal, instinctual, as Dan said, but also culturally ingrained that it's weakness. You got that double whammy working against you. So, all right, so which of the two do you think is more difficult? The don't pay back evil for evil, insult for insult, or giving a blessing in return and why? Which of the two do you think is more difficult? Not paying back evil for evil and insult for insult, or instead just giving a blessing in return? Because you can do one and not the other, right? Yeah, it's like the first one is just keeping it even. And the second one is, it's that 10% but the opposite direction. Or more even, yeah, good. Adding. I, I would agree. I think it's definitely easier to like take a deep breath and just like keep your mouth shut and like maybe grit your teeth a little bit than it is to you know turn around and, and, and be giving. For me it takes a lot more creativity to give a blessing because I, oh I'll bless you all right. <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh true yeah it's fun to be creative when it's revenge 
Oh, oh, yeah, there's, I mean, that's, whoops. I don't know why my microphone just decided it wanted to do something it's, crazy. You can think of all kinds of things that you can do to other people when they've hurt you. I mean, that's the Count of Monte Cristo, right? All those years in prison, sitting there creatively figuring out how he's going to get everybody back. You like that one, Lee? Yeah, that's a good one, right? You could get really creative, but not quite as creative doing the blessing piece. And then oh, you can get creative with it. Yeah. Mike? Giving the oh. blessing is also difficult because it's you're acting in a way that is in opposition to how you're feeling usually because the physiological response you have when you're angry that something so, about something someone did is, is not conducive to a heartfelt gesture of kindness. That's true. Yeah. Mike? I was just thinking that probably most of us who know the Lord and who have that relationship with, with Christ probably don't seek revenge or that, that's not the, I don't think problem. And it's just my opinion, but I just don't think for most of us, that is the real problem with, uh, when, when we're wrong, we want to figure out how to get back. But I do see how it could be, uh, a real challenge for us to figure out a way to change our mindset and ask for blessings upon that person. For me, that's the hardest thing. Yeah, I uh, totally get it. I totally get it. want the best for that person after they just, uh, you know, did me dirty. Yeah. All said. It's true. Yeah. So uh, let's look at, um, Again, let's kind of focus in on the, ver at the end of verse nine now. He says, you were called to do this. What's the this? The not paying back evil and the blessing. You were called to do this so that you might inherit a blessing. So according to Peter, do we earn God's blessing by doing these behaviors? That's what this text sounds like. If you I think it's, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Sorry. I think it's a seed planting thing. When you give out a blessing, you're throwing out a seed, and every seed will bring back a harvest. Let's focus in exactly on the phraseology there. Because notice, I think he chooses a very interesting word. He uses the word inherit. So what is, what do you think is significant about the fact that Peter speaks of inheriting blessing rather than earning blessing? Remember, he has the choice to use whichever word he, he wants there, and he uses the word inherit. How does that relate to these, these activities, these, excuse me, these behaviors? It's sort of, um, I think what, what other people have said is it's sort of others focus kind of like um how you would treat members of your family so i mean aside from maybe sibling sibling rivalry you're not going to turn insult against you know you're not going to trade insult for insult with your family you're going to be more compassionate and sympathetic and forgiving um and kind of that word inherit implies that um you know behaving as if we are a family entitles you to the benefits of being a member of that family, namely 
you know, the passing on of blessings. Yeah. But just the use of inherit, inherit implies generational. Mm. You know, and, and relationship, certainly relationship. I'm going to get the blessing. Also, just basically what you inherit is not something that you have earned. It's something that someone else has earned. And in this case, it's whom? Who's earned that for you? Jesus. Your parent. Jesus. And yeah, in, our, in, the, in the case of everything he's talking about, he's building the case for why this resurrection new life that we have, that we receive through Christ, these are some of the things that we've inherited, which should be, he's implying, the ability to not pay back evil for evil, and instead bless for good, that's something that we've inherited, Mike. Um, no, you're fine. Um, I was thinking too, I like what Ray just said about someone else had, had earned it, but we can't inherit something if we don't have a certain status, if we're not in a certain position. And so this being uh, a a child of God is the status that that we have. Yeah, yeah, true, true. Any other ideas about that? All right, if you're not in a certain position or status. Right. I'm having trouble interpreting this because in one sense, inherit sometimes means getting something for free, something that you don't deserve because you know, all of a sudden, you know, your grandmother passes and she left you this money and then you're, you know, you didn't do, you didn't work for that money. You're just getting it for free. But on the other hand, in some cases where you have large families um, or, or even where there's someone who, um, who doesn't have any children or grandchildren, then um, sometimes it's people that are in their life that have shown kindness, that have in some way it kind of earned it because they played a significant role in their life. And so then they got the inheritance or the blessing. Yeah. And I think you've, Erica, you've illustrated um, the challenge um, or a better way of saying the illustrated for us, the importance of uh, narrative, historical, contextual approach to the scripture that we take. And I even add into that the semiotic piece to it, because if we were to just pull this piece out, right, and we're just going to examine these two, sen these two sentences and kind of break down the wording, whatever, without the first, the historical context, which we just hit a little bit of, right, this idea of paying back evil for evil and insult for insult being unique, not doing that being unique to Christianity, but also within the context of the book itself, the entire study that we've been doing, but, you know, the chapters leading up to this, He's made this point, he's been making the point that we, we are, as children of God, we have inherited certain things because of the resurrection, because of the resurrection and the fact that we are now children of God, we have an inherited the ability to do certain kinds of things that in our old nature would have been virtually impossible to do. And so I think in that, in the language that he's been using up to this, inherit definitely ties us back to what we've inherited in Christ. So I think that's why maybe he picked that particular uh, phrase to connect back to what he's been talking about in the first couple of chapters. Does that help, Erica? Help kind of focus it a little bit? Yeah. 
Yeah, and that's, that's the importance of what we're doing here by doing it that way. Because we have to be careful. We don't want to fall into this idea that we inherit blessing, that we earn blessings from God by something that we do, right? We, we gain, we inherit things because of who we are in Christ. So as we continue in our text, Peter is going to quote from... Oh, excuse me, I just did something improper. There we go. Um, I put up in the chat box the next couple of verses there for you because Peter is going to quote from the First Testament book of Psalms um, to drive home the point that he has just made. And if we're studying the passage, if you're studying the passage on your own, part of what I'm trying to do is teach you how to engage the scripture on your own, you would uh, normally, you would flip back to Psalm 34, or you'd go and you'd figure out some of the context of what's happening in Psalm 34 for the purpose of reading um, with a better understanding of the text. Anytime that uh, a writer inserts something from a, from a First Testament or an other reference, it's helpful uh, to go back and remember the setting and the narrative of context of whatever is being written. And in this case, it's Psalm 34. It's almost a direct quote from Psalm 34, verses 12 through 16. But for the sake of time, let me just refresh your memory about what's taking place there. Now remember, David is on the run from Saul. Saul is king, but David, God has told David that he's king. And so you've got this double anointing of kingship here. And a number of years, Paul, uh, Saul is after David. And David goes to the Philistine city of Gath to try to escape King Saul. But unfortunately, there's no refuge there for him. In fact, he narrowly escapes, 1 Samuel 21 and 22 is the story. He narrowly escapes with his life by pretending to be mentally unstable. He's drooling. He's acting crazy. Sherry knows the story. She's laughing. I mean, he just acts like he's oh mentally God. unfit for anything. Oh. And... As a result, they stop paying much attention to him, and he escapes to the caves at Adullam. And there he's joined by a group of other desperate men, and he writes Psalm 34 in the midst of that time frame, in the depths of that cave, while he's hiding out from those people who are his enemies, those people trying to exact from him an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, that whole getting back from him, right? Because they perceive, Saul has perceived that what he's done is an evil injustice against him. So he's seeking to get him. So now look over at verse 10 and 12 as I read. For those who want to love life and see good days should keep their tongue from evil speaking and their lips from speaking lies. They should shun evil and do good, seek peace and chase after it. The Lord's eyes are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the Lord cannot tolerate those who do evil. How does the context and the content of Psalm 34 help us understand Peter's purpose for using this text or quoting this text in our passage? How does it help us understand Peter's purpose for inserting that, knowing the background? Anybody? I suppose, as you said, when David wrote this, he was on the run from Saul, who was literally trying to hunt him down and kill him. And yet, even in, you know, despite that circumstance, he's still saying, like, to 
keep their tongue from evil speaking and to, you know, the Lord cannot tolerate those who do evil, even in retaliation, even if the person, you know, quote unquote, deserves it like Saul did. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Other ideas? Well, because David did not retaliate against Saul, he actually did um, return a blessing true. to him. By he choosing not, yeah, I see what you're saying, yeah. Yeah, he's using this as a story in their minds that they would have understood. They understood the, the whole picture of that piece. Good. Other ideas? So much of the community had been dispersed into all kinds of different cultures. They were being tormented. They didn't have jobs. And so you know, if you were to do this, you have a better chance of living a blessed life than if you want evil, do evil for evil, rise up by, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. So in other words, they're on, they're literally or figuratively on the run in their exile as well. They're, they're being chased down by people who are persecuting them. You know, it's a, it's a very narrow at this point focused um, persecution. And so there's a definite parallel, right, that you're seeing, Phil, that in, in the way that David responded to theirs. Good. Any other thoughts? I think that they're able to, um, if they follow this, they're able to change the trajectory of what will happen in the future. Okay. Because if they continue to do evil for evil, um, it's going to escalate mm -hmm. into more violence. The key word being if <laughs> we see in the uh, in the first testament, um, we we see God's people continually, you know, up and down, up and down, up and down. Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I feel like with this passage and what you just shared, David, there's kind of like this Game of Thrones kind of parallel where on the Saul track. The way you inherit the throne is by the way that Saul behaved, is you exert power and violence and you do revenge. And then you have the other track, which is the throne of Christ, which we're supposed to be being prepared for and we're going to be inheriting. And the way that you prepare for that throne is by doing the things that Peter talks about. Oh, yeah, great observation. Great observation. You know, there's a way I think we can look at this that, that um, if we look at what God promises in verses 10 through 12, and I think that there are four promises kind of wrapped up in there, that David suggests is something that we gain that is greater than getting even. Remember, the context above that is about not getting even. And it's almost like to me, he inserts this piece for all the reasons you guys have suggested, but also that there are some things that are better in life or greater in life than getting even. So look at verses 10 through 12 and start calling out what are some of those things that David suggests are greater than getting even. A good life. Yeah, you see, you see good days. What else? Live in peace. You get to love life. Yeah, you get to love life. You get to see good days. And then down verse 12, you get the eyes of God on you. 
and the ears of God open to your prayers. So that's a pretty good list right there, right? He's saying instead of getting even, which is, you know, there is a certain sense of, of um, satisfaction that comes, short-lived satisfaction, but put that up against having a love of life, seeing good days, having the eyes of God. That's more than just like, I see what's happening. It's in the Hebrew idea, it's God is with you. He's present with you. And the ears of God open to your prayers. Anybody not want those things? Anyone not want those things? Is that a real question? <laughs> that's my, yeah. So that's my rhetorical question. So then why do we so often do the opposite of these verses? If we know that that's the potential in front of us, love of life, good days, eyes of God on us, and the ears of God open to our prayers, why do we so often do the opposite? Because we're constantly in a battle of, responding based on our emotional reactions rather than our thoughtfulness about the situation. I love that. That's an idea of reacting versus responding. I wrote a chapter about that this week, Erica. Maybe it's because we're not well connected to the Lord. Um, maybe because we spend too much of our time with the world uh, doing the things of the world, our jobs and whatever else. And we don't spend enough time connecting with the Lord so that the Lord's spirit just doesn't naturally come out through those emotions. We can have that emotional reaction on the on, from the Lord's perspective than from our natural perspective, but that doesn't happen just because we call ourselves Christians. It happens because we've, put the word of God in our hearts and it's always there and we're always conscious of it. And I know I'm guilty of that. I, I don't spend enough time with the Lord. That's all. Yeah. I think you're, you're, you're spot on. Remember now in the first chapter, one of the things that he talked about um, and one of the big exhortations we took away from our first week here was this idea that we were to be holy, right? So this idea of holiness. So when we, when we choose not to be separate and, and holy, which is that idea of being separate, right? Then all of those actions that were part of our former life start showing back up instead of the new resurrection life that we're to live. Good. Now notice, um, as we continue in the text, and I'm gonna go ahead and go over here and pop it in for you. I want you to notice um, what I think is a, a rather startling uh, or poignant, I'll, I'll call it a poignant question. Who will harm you, Peter asked, if you are zealous for good? Who will harm you if you are zealous for good? So I did a little bit of research this week thinking to myself, I wonder how we're supposed to understand and read that. And it's interesting that um, almost all the commentators that I read and I, I've looked at all suggest that Peter is asking a rhetorical question. If he's asking a rhetorical question, what is the assumed answer? No one. No one. Somebody said it, right? No one. So who's going to harm you if you're zealous for good? The question is, if you do great things, who in the world is going to bother you for doing that? 
Let me step back and ask you this question. How might the first century audience answer that question? Because I'm not so sure it's as cut and dried a rhetorical question as it might on the first on the surface appear. How might they have answered that question? Probably the opposite. They probably would have assumed that like everyone will just take advantage of them if they're zealous for good. And why do you say that? I mean, just the like cultural context that um, like compassion and sympathy and and um, humility were seen as weakness. So, yeah. Exactly. Well, and at one of these points, he's writing all these letters from jail. So one would argue he is being harmed for doing good. This is Peter. This is Peter. Peter. You're right. My bad. But but the idea that yeah, he's he's not living a cush life either. You're living under Roman occupation, so things are fairly arbitrary, almost by definition. I read it as connected to the next sentence. Okay. But happy are you even if you suffer because of righteousness. I think those sentences could be turned around. If you're happy because of your righteousness, then no one can harm you. Yeah. Well, well thought out. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that, that's awesome. Awesome. Mike? The word harm keeps stepping out, you know, keeps poking out at me. And, and I guess my question to you, David, would be what would the context, with the context and, and the language, what, is there any special meaning to that word harm? Or is it, because I'm kind of thinking who can ultimately harm you? Uh, that's more how I read the question. Who, like who, being harmed would be taken out of the hands of God. And, and I think this is, he might be asking, who can do that? And the answer rhetorically, the rhetorical answer is no, no one. Yeah, I think you've, you're right at spotting that th there is a sense of the both andness of this, where um, yeah, in the sense of ultimately who can harm you, who can destroy your soul, who can take away, you know, all the things that you have in Christ, the answer to that is no one. But as, as I said earlier, I do think that um, knowing the context of what he's writing is, maybe their first answer is um, not no one, it's, well, aren't you, I mean, are you here, Peter? Are you seeing what's happening here? To which his response is, Yes, if you look at the narrowness of what you're going through right now on this earth, people can harm you. But as Ray eloquently connected us, he said, look, ultimately, verse 14, you're happy. The other word for that is just the same word that we saw in um, Jesus's Sermon on the Mount, the blessed are you, right? Jesus said, happy or blessed in some ways, lucky. Remember we translated it that way, lucky are you even if you suffer because of righteousness. He's just following up on, on, on the teaching of Jesus, right? He's just picking up on that same piece. But then it's kind of a startling statement, though, about suffering, right? Again, just as startling as it was when Jesus turns around and says, hey, when you're persecuted for righteousness sake, you're lucky, you're blessed. That needs some explanation, right? Certainly does. And that's why he goes on and continues in the text, I think, to describe and help them understand why they can be happy. And as he says in the second half of verse 14, he says, 
Also, don't be terrified or upset by them. And as I'm reading that, again, trying to put myself in the, uh, in the place of the first century here, I'm thinking to myself, really, Peter? Don't be afraid of them. Don't be upset by them. How is that even possible? Any ideas? It doesn't feel like it's possible. You have to have, you have to change your mindset. True. It's hard. Does it seem any less possible than what he's already asked them to do in verse nine about don't pay back evil for evil or insult for insult, instead give blessings in return? They're all kind of tied together, like working towards like a holistic change of how you respond to things. I think you guys have, have hit it on the nail. It's he's offering them a new approach, right? You have to look at suffering and what you're doing in a different kind of a light. You can't be so narrowly focused on here. And if you go back and you look, Peter's saying, at all that we have in Christ, that we have been talking about for the last, what, two and a half chapters, right? You now have the ability, a new approach for dealing with these things. Instead, he says, verse 15, you don't have to be afraid or terrified them of them. He says, Instead, regard Christ as holy in your hearts. Regard Christ, the Lord, as holy in your hearts. Or some translations say sanctified or set apart Christ as Lord. And by the way, this word um, for set apart or regard Christ or sanctify Christ is the same word Jesus used in his model prayer when he taught us to pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. It's the same word. It's the same word. So what does it mean to regard Christ the Lord as holy in our hearts? What does he mean by that? Not so easy, huh? That's a hard one. It is. It goes back to the one mind, one soul, one body. If, if all of our being is in Christ, then it's easier to accept a positive mental outlook, even if we're attacked by someone or confronted or thrown obstacles by someone. If, if we're in a holy place in our minds and our bodies, then Jesus will help us do it. It's not our will, but it's his will. Good. Good. Any other thoughts on what it means to regard Christ, the Lord, as holy in your hearts? I think well, Jesus back to the Shema, like God should be at the forefront of your minds and literally everything that you are doing. Yeah. And so if he is at that forefront, then everything else will naturally fall in place. If he is that everything, that all, mm -hmm. encompass, all encompassing part of who you are, right? 
exactly. Totally uh, regarding him as the holiest being in the universe, as unique, one of a kind, without peer arrival, putting him in a category all by himself, and then recognizing that we're related. <laughs> we're part of that same family. Yeah, good. What else? Jesus was our total example. When he went to the cross, how did he, quote unquote, retaliate? He retaliated, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing and, and stuff like that. I mean, he went through all that stuff. He kept his mouth shut, except for, you know, when he was on the cross, he made sure that his mama was okay. He, he forgave everybody. And, and uh, so he, he is our ultimate example that, that we need to totally focus on and, and, you know, in that reverent honor kind of thing. Yeah, so notice that at the beginning of verse 15, he has that um, connectional clause there in Greek, and it's, we translate it as instead. In other words, 15 is connected to verse 14. So he says, don't be terrified or set by, upset by them. Instead, regard Christ as holy in your heart. We understand that regarding Christ as holy is that he's our allness, separate, unique, one of a kind, without peer, without rival. He's in a category in, of control all by himself. What connection does this idea regarding Christ the holy, Christ the Lord is holy in your hearts? What does that connection have to the previous verse? In other words, how does it help us to not be terrified or upset by those who per persecute us? Because that's what he's saying. If you keep Christ, the Lord, as holy in your hearts, you don't have to be terrified or upset by those who persecute you. Why? It's I mean, like to relate it back to what you were saying before about David and David being on the run, if you think the people who are going to win are the people who are like Saul, then you really ought to be petrified. If you think David's throne is going to win, then that puts it in a different perspective. Yeah. And Jesus said that he, over, he has overcome the world. So we, we are not supposed to fear. I mean, he actually kind of, I guess, commanded it. Yeah. Other ideas about how that regarding Christ the Lord is holy in your hearts is the antidote, if you will, to being terrified or upset by what other people are doing to you? I think that um, being terrified or upset by what other people are doing to you are very um, uh, present concerns. They're very short-term uh, annoyances, I guess. Um, and if, if you're looking at Christ as holy, and if you're knowing he wins, and if you're knowing that he is within you, you can have a long-term view of, despite what's happening here, long-term, I'm going to be on the winning side of all this. Yeah. Who will harm you if you're zealous for good? Well, no one. Because Christ the Lord is holy. He is above. He's in control. He's unlike anyone else. What do we have to fear? Absolutely. Any other thoughts? And I think that when we, we think about Christ was persecuted and all that he went through and suffered, but he's sitting on the right hand of the Father. And so, yes, here on earth, we may suffer and be persecuted and 
talked about those kind of things, but ultimately we win because we get to be with Christ, which is our inheritance. Absolutely, yeah. Any other thoughts? I kind of go go back to, or go to a, the modern phraseology of a narrative. Okay. Are you going to accept the Christ narrative or are you going to accept the narrative of these other people? Uh, well said, yeah, exactly. Exactly. So notice now as we kind of wrap up our, our text for this morning, he goes, after he said in the first part of 15, instead regard Christ the Lord as holy in your hearts. Then he throws in this piece that says, whenever anybody asks you, to speak of your hope, be ready to defend it, yet do this with respectful humility, maintaining a good conscience. Interesting to me that instead, regard Christ as holy in your hearts. As we sanctify Christ as Lord, we do that. I'm suggesting that he, Peter is saying that we do that. One of the ways we demonstrate that is obviously by all the things that he's commanded us to do above that. But we do that by being prepared when any, whenever anybody asks us to be ready to defend our hope. In other words, he's saying that we have to be ready to explain why we have chosen, for instance, not to repay evil for evil and instead to bless why we are zealous for doing good, and why we're not afraid of the persecution that may come our way. And when people ask us and say, well, why in the world did you do that? Why did you respond that way? We can say, we did that because, and in Peter's mind, he's saying things like, because we are a new person in Christ. We are no longer the same person. We no longer we have a new approach. We don't have to respond in the old way. Mike? Mike? I have a question. Yep. I was looking at the Amplified Version, and it puts, right, it puts the word logical defense. And it puts logical in parentheses. And I, just, I was wondering if that word defense as it, uh, in the language, in the original language there, has some legal connotation to it uh, cer yeah certainly it does it has a legal connotation in the same way that when he's talking about our inheritance that's a legal kind of a contract we've inherited these things um, sometimes I, I like the way the amplified handles it sometimes the challenge um, the only challenge I might put with that is obviously in that day and time a logical response or any time I guess a logical response um, I'm just not sure that logical responses are always that convincing. Depends on the situation and, you know, the individuals and whatnot. I'm not always sure that logic, I think maybe there's more involved in that, i.e., let me tell you my story, what I have experienced. To me, the, the power of our experience and our story of what has happened to us and how we've experienced it, to me, is a much more powerful way of uh, illustrating and regarding Christ as holy in our hearts than a pure logic approach, which is kind of like, uh, what was the name of that? Was it Josh McDowell did the book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict? Um, in a day and time when logic was a big deal and in the Greco-Roman world they're in, 
totally makes sense. I think we're in a little bit of a different world now. We're in a, uh, an experience-based, and I would even argue now we're moving to our, toward a, um, uh, a, even a differing kind of, of world where our stories and the ability to communicate those stories clearly um, offer a better opportunity than getting into a logical battle back and forth about the evidences of the resurrection or anything along those lines. Anybody else want to jump in on thoughts on that? I just want to say 100% that is our experience. Anytime that you try to convince someone of anything using science and sound judgment and logic and reasoning, uh, at least 50% of the time it's unsuccessful, but as soon as you say, oh my gosh, this thing, I did this thing and it was really great. Other people want to be part of that and do that. Yeah, I think you hit on the key. You, you, can, you can argue against logic or argue a logical point and challenge a logical point and even disagree with a logical point. You really can't challenge someone's experience and say, no, experience it. that's not real. At least, I mean, you could pretend to say that, but for the person who's, who's experienced it, you're going, no, this is real. But like most people wouldn't know a documented, named logical fallacy if it bit them on the head. But, and like literally when someone is making an argument, they will literally use one of those fallacies to make their argument. And I almost can't help myself sometimes. I like I that idea, say. David. I really like that idea of, of the story being more logical than the facts. Um, saying that, well, I didn't retaliate because I'm a child of God. Is, that's not really logical to someone who's not a believer. Right. But if we can, but like you said, if we can tell your experience with God and that leads to your desire not to retaliate, then it makes a lot more sense, I believe. Yeah. yeah, and I, I think it absolutely that. helps us with the, the latter part of verse 16. He says, yet do this, tell that story, with respectful humility, maintaining a good conscience. I would find it difficult to get into a logical, I would find it challenging sometimes to get into a logical battle, or so to speak, with people and do so with respectful humility and maintaining a good conscience. It, it takes discipline to do that. Um, and all, all you need to do if, you're, you're, if you at all question that assumption is watch social media and watch people engage in debate in the social media in, in the public square and watch how humility goes out the door and um, uh, respect goes out the door, all of that goes out the door. And then watch the difference to when people just say, in my experience, this is what, I, this is what I'm experiencing. And then watch how people respond to that differently. It's a whole nother way of communicating. It's a different kind of approach. Yeah. Good. So as we wrap up our time here, um, what is a practical way that we could apply Peter's words this coming week? That's it. One, just one socket to you question as we wrap it up. What is a practical way? that we can apply Peter's words in the coming week. Anybody? I might have just given you a hint there with my last one. Mike? For me, it's going to be uh, making sure I know my story with Christ. 
maybe jotting it down and committing it to, I mean, I don't have to commit it to memory because it's already in my memory, but just making sure I know what my story is. Yeah. Know your story. Good. Forgiving someone. Ooh, yeah. Forgiving someone who has wronged you. Yeah. Good. Other ideas. Being mindful and Christ-centered so that when, so that I'm better equipped for handling ad adversity. Good, yeah. Other ideas? Meditating on his word and praying so that you are in communion with the Lord and he's more at the forefront of your mind and you you have the words ready if somebody asks any questions. Yeah, I like that. The, having the words ready. I think some of it, some of us, we know our words and we even know when it's the right time to say it, but sometimes we're fearful of, of doing it. So for me, that idea of not being afraid when people ask, why are you choosing to be that way? To, to just be willing to share it. Yeah. David, can I tell a quick um, story? Love that. To that um, is related to this. I'll try to make it quick. Um, and I think you know, David. Um, uh, in high school, my daughter, Natalie, was being bullied from by a girl. And Natalie was going to Prestonwood um, Christian Academy. And um, um, she was being bullied for six months every day mm. I kept on saying let me let me go talk to her mom let uh why don't you why don't you react back to her why don't you tell the teacher you know why don't you do something she said mom i can handle it you know mm -hmm. she finally did go and tell um the counselor what was going on but she didn't want anybody being involved she was going to handle it her way and you know, I just had to pray through it. And one day she, you know, six months later, whatever, she stood up to her um, after being so embarrassed about this girl got up in front of the class and had a t-shirt made about Natalie saying something really bad about her. And anyway, we hope you enjoyed this episode of the Table Dallas podcast. We invite you to join the conversation at one of our upcoming tables. To learn more about us, please check out our website at thetabledallas.com. We are saving a seat for you at the table.